Welcome to Blackbird episode number 90. My name is James, and today I am thrilled to introduce to you, if you haven't met her, Carol Queen. Carol is a sexologist and an author and an editor. She's an instructor at Renegade University and uh, just an incredibly fascinating person. So I wanted to have her on. And without further ado, Carol, welcome to the show. James, thank you so much for having me. I'm really, uh, I'm really so pleased to have a chance to chat about interesting things. Yeah. The yeah. wonderful thing that we get to do with our lives is talk about interesting stuff. I know. So this is going to be a departure from some of my other shows. It's typically, uh, well, I don't know. I do talk a lot about philosophy. We talk a lot about psychedelics and seeing the world through new eyes and things like that. I've never had a sexologist on. I've only had, and so, and I'm, I'm gay, but I think I've only had one other gay person on the show. So you're going to be the first, I think, so you use she, they pronouns, right? Right. Any, either of those, both of those, whatever. So would you call yourself non-binary? I would call myself non-binary sometimes, at least. Okay. I think I have a, I sort of have a, a traditional gender identity of sorts. And cool. then I have another view of myself that isn't as traditional as all that gender wise. I think, okay. you know, if, if. I, I started doing the work that brought me here in the 70s in the LGBTQ community, which wasn't called that yet, of course. It was mostly called the gay community then. And for some reason, the sexual orientation piece didn't link up much with the gender identity piece in those days. And there wasn't as much space for, for non-binary gender identity people either. Sure, And so it it sort of grew as I got older, the recognition that, you know, I don't, I don't always feel like a woman the way I think I did and the way I think many others do. And also, to be honest, I just want to make a little more space for a few more pronouns because that's fraught right now. That's fraught mm-hmm. today in this world. And, and I don't think it has to be that fraught. So I'm just sort of spreading it out a little bit. That makes sense. Okay, cool. I would like to get some of your bio. So you started out beautifully talking about your kind of early days working in the gay community, I guess, for lack of a better term. How did you get started there? Well, I knew that I wasn't straight exactly from Mm -hmm. an extremely early age, like probably before I was 10, certainly before I was 11. Yeah, same, actually. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm 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 a little agnostic in the born that way situation, but I'm not at all agnostic yeah. in me. It's you know, ten or eleven is not too young to start to figure out who you are and to yeah. begin to begin to place yourself on the path of the world, right? I mean, I certainly felt that in those days, and this was, of course, you know, not that long after the summer of love, the you know, sex <laughs> and sex and gender and orientation and diversity and different things were in the air in certain ways. And I lived in the sticks. So I had to embody them in however way I could. And that involved sexual exploration, reading everything I get my hands on, trying to wrap my mind around everything, trying to trying to figure out who I was in the context of a world that I knew was bigger out there than in here. And, and eventually I obviously went out and joined that world. But my my real step into this business 
was starting with a couple of uh, gay boys I met at a panel, a gay youth group. To my knowledge, the third one in the country. Back in 1970, I think five is when we mm-hmm. did it. We we tried to sue the school district in Eugene, Oregon a couple of years later, but that, that didn't work out, sadly. We, we got a little ways, but we didn't get very far. And um, what we were basically doing was trying to make a space for queer kids because most of the queer adults, even the ones that we could trust, <laughs> went to the gay bar. And that was mainly all they did. And they had their social life. Like, there was a world, but it involved being carted. So we couldn't go and join the world. So we started our own little little satellite world. And that's how I got into the world of LGBTQ, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, <laughs> everything. Because from there, I was uh, a college activist. From there, I was an HIV AIDS activist or educator, at least. Ad- activist, I think, is okay to call me, although I wasn't one of the people who, you know, like went and died in front of the FDA and had my body chalkmarked. I wasn't one of them, but I was getting around and talking about safer sex and talking about HIV AIDS and talking about no mosquitoes are not it and all of the things <laughs> that we needed to talk about in those days with all my might. And that slid me into sexology. I wanted to do something significant with all of that and there weren't really gay jobs in those days exactly. The 80s were the time that we began to get, I think, professional gays, really. Mm-hmm. The task force was around. People may listening to you may not know what I mean by that. The, the LGBT task force, uh, which helps deal with legislation and different things like that. But that wasn't the kind of activist I wanted to be. I wanted to, I, I had a degree in sociology. I wanted to mash it all up. With the sexology, I wanted to think about who we are and why we're here and who we get with and who who we can't talk to easily and all the things, which I think we're probably going to talk about tonight, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So where does someone get a doctorate in sexology? Well, not very many places, as it turns out. And I didn't know there was such a thing. I didn't set out to do it. This is what's really funny about my path. My... um, Girlfriend and I in the early 80s were, she wanted to go to grad school. She wanted to become an attorney. She did. And I was just, I was just floating around uh, doing activist stuff mainly. I would drop out of school for a while. I would go back. I would drop out. I would go back. I was, I was pretty good at school, but I was really distracted by other stuff like protest marches and all Mm. the things. And so uh, we went to the University of Oregon Library because in those days you couldn't look up where the graduate schools were on the internet. You had to go to some place that collected their catalogs and sit at a table and look through them. I'm sure some of your listeners are so young that they can't even imagine anything that analog. It's like yeah, how tedious. Catalogs on a table? Yes, yes. <laughs> young friends, this is how it was once. And my girlfriend pushes a catalog, little thin brown catalog. I remember it to this day. Across the table at me says, I think this one is for you. And it was the Institute for Advanced Study of Human Sexuality. Indeed, Hmm. it was for me. I didn't know that there was such a thing as sexology. But the second I knew that there was, I was like, that, I'm going to go do that. That puts it all together. 
right? That puts the the activism, the orientation, the sexual exploration, the who am I really? Who are we all? Who am I vis-a-vis gay men? Who All of it. Sociology wraps it up and there's actually something called the thing that I'm so focused on. So of course I I went there and and that place is no longer there. There are a handful of places around the country where you can get masters or and or PhDs in uh, sexual studies or sexology or it can be called different things in different yeah. places, but not very many. So yeah, that was going to be kind of my next question. Um, I, I noticed that it ends in ology and not in studies. Is that just because of when it came out or is it actually more rigorous and less ideological than some of the areas that end in studies? Well, that's a good question. I think in it's it's um, rigorous isn't the word I would use, but the word that I would use is more um, sort of a more overarching attempt mm. to get at something really large. Because when when I talk to people about what sexology is, because Plenty of people to this day have never heard about it. And they ask me what it is all the time. They're like, you're a psychologist. I'm like, not a psychologist. Mm. I mean, those those two things touch, but I'm not trained in that one. I'm trained in this one. The thing I think that I want to get across to people who aren't sure about this is that that it's, it's an academic or professional focus on sexuality so that, you know, the, 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 urologist who does nothing but talk about erectile issues uh, might identify as a sexologist if he's like, if he knows more about sexual functioning and pleasure penis-wise than anybody else in his medical cohort, then he's a version of a sexologist, uh-huh. right? The, the, uh, so the studies people, um, you know, the the ones that as you say, are ideological or the ones who are more primarily historical in the way that they delve. And the, 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 those could those folks could be called sexologists under certain circumstances. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that they would necessarily identify that. And it definitely doesn't mean that they would step into the whole world of human sexual functioning or as the president of the institute I went to used to say, what people do and how they feel about it. And that's much more complex and and big picture than it sounds like it is at first read, right? Like mm. how they feel about it. Well, that's where it touches with psychology, to be honest, and a lot of other things too. You know, the social issues and movements are there as well. There's a lot. It's packed in, and there's a lot of sexo- sexuality. So there's there's a lot of different directions that someone could go. A lot of places someone could focus. And um, Honestly, I think I'm I'm one of the most sociological of my generation of sexologists in certain ways. But I think that there were people back in the day who sort of coined the term sexology or brought it from the brought brought studies from the 19th century into the 20th and and got ready for the 21st via this term, wanting so much to make sexuality understanding and research higher profile and more acceptable than it was. Yeah, I actually knew someone, I think his PhD was in psychology, but uh, he did plethysmographs for Uh, sex offenders. Uh, Where they they would, and 
from what I understand, this is a really kind of outdated technique now, but you know, back in the, I think it was 2001 or so that I met him, mm-hmm. basically they put a, they put a strap around the guy's dick, show him porn of various types if he gets hard, that means he's attracted to this kind of thing. If he doesn't get hard, then he's not attracted to that kind of thing. And Bob's your uncle. And he was part of the American Association or whatever of sexologists. So, mm-hmm. is that, I mean, is that is like is that sort of thing part of sexology as well? Yeah, it's. I mean, that's that would be that would fall under forensic sexology. I okay. suppose. I mean, when when um, Doctor Ted. Dr. Ted McElvena, the guy who I would just referred to, who described it as what we do and how we feel about it. Uh-huh. Ted McElvena was the one of the founders of the Institute for Advanced Study of Human Sexuality and a really a somewhat polarizing but really important figure in mid-late 20th century sexology. And he, part of, partly because he did this, this school, but partly because he just got around and said whatever he felt like saying and so on. And um, he would he would focus on forensic sexology as being trained up sufficiently to be an expert witness in a trial. That was mm-hmm. one of the things that that he commonly did. And if there was a, a sex offender situation or something that where the jury or the judge had to have sex of some variant, usually a unusual and sometimes an illegal variant, or a problematic under the circumstances variant explained to them that a forensic sexologist might be one of the people called in as an expert sure. witness. And, and he, he liked to encourage people to do that uh, partly because you could build the court and get some money. And part of the thing <laughs> about sexology is like anybody who, who, I don't know, majors in something presumably thinks they're going to maybe go and do some kind of work like that. Right. Mm. Now, English majors out there who are doing something else, I see you. I, I, that, that, that's a thing. <laughs> all my, all my Oregon <sighs> grad students who, who didn't want to leave Eugene, and so now they're bus boys. I see you, but also there are the people who, who really, really don't know what they're going to do with this training exactly. There are only so many things without being real entrepreneurial that you can do. You can find a. You can find a college, usually a junior college or something, uh, to let you be their sex educator, uh, teacher, their sex, you know, their sex ed teacher, uh, if any, <laughs> if they have one. You can uh, be a clinical sexologist, which is much like a sex therapist, not exactly the same, but much like that. Mm-hmm. Working with people, couples, whatever, who who need to grapple with things and and feel better about themselves and their situation, or learn things, or so on. Uh, you can. Do what I've done and affiliate with a sexuality-related company. Good Vibrations is my my day job, and um, work on education there. Work on serving the public through information and things like that. Representing the company, the public, and the press, and on the side, writing books, doing lectures, talking to you, running around, and doing things. I identify a little bit as a sexological overachiever. But that's because I can't say no to interesting things, and uh, which is probably one of the things that made me a sexologist in the first place. Mm-hmm. And also because there's not a job description called sexologist that you go and fill out an application for and get hired. Right? You have to you have to make your your way by taking this interest, this focus, and this academic background and shoehorning it into or creating out of it something. Yeah, uh, which is where we get a lot of the 
you know, current generation of sexperts from. And of course, the internet has really helped people monetize and make space for that kind of work where it was harder to do before. So I have my own variant, but it's a patchwork quilt for many of us. You know, we have a variety of things that we patch together and, you know, get some money. And, and Dr. Ted wanted one of those things to be, be an expert witness, go and convince the jury of uh, the client's guilt, innocence, or just explain to them what it was that they were accused yeah. of doing. So tell me a little bit about Good Vibrations and... um how it functions in the community and also how you function in the, in the business. Well, Good Vibrations has a, Good Vibrations actually is having its 45th anniversary this very month, our, our birthday, rather. We're not married to anyone, so I guess it's not an anniversary. Um, we're having our 45th birthday, and that means that we were the second women-owned and founded um, sex shop in the United States, third in the world, to my knowledge, First one was in Germany and then and then New York and then San Francisco, which sounds about right in a way. Because sexology really sort of emerged out of Germany in hmm. the late 19th century. So of course they were they were quick on the draw with that business. And so um good vibrations always initially was especially to serve women. Joni was part of a, a project at the University of California, San Francisco Medical School uh, called Pre-Orgasmic Women's Groups, founded and run by the uh, then famous and probably still famous uh, sex therapist, Lonnie Barbach. And she wanted to put women in a combination of a consciousness raising, like a la 1970s chat group and a therapy group that would help the women there who needed to grapple with the, their inability to have orgasms understand that there was information they were lacking, probably information their partners were lacking. Uh, did they have sex ed classes? Well, guess what? They weren't very good. Also, <laughs> you and I could probably say the same. Also, most of your listeners could probably say the same. Something's never changed. Just a second, I'm gonna. There's a siren passing for the listeners who heard her go silent just now. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a fire truck. Hope everyone's okay. I hope so too. I think there's a young person who lives in the apartment building across the street who routinely oh. pulls the fire alarm. Oh, uh, great. They, they stop there all the time. There's never a fire and may there never be a fire, but mm. there they went. It's, it's something else. And I too hope everyone's okay. Um, sorry about going silent, everyone. No, no problem. That, no problem at all. I appreciate firing. that. I'm, I'm wearing headphones. That would have been... <laughs> Yeah, that would excruciating. So, so where was I? So, Good Vibrations uh, sought to make vibrators available to the women who, when they got to the point in that group, and uh, the leaders suggested they were already suggested to masturbate. The second thing was, we suggest you masturbate with a vibrator. Those often can get people over the edge. They can't get over the edge any other way. Mm. They're actually very efficient for this. And the women would go, oh, I could never go into one of those places. One of those. <laughs> and you know what they meant, of course. I'll just explain it to the listeners just in case you don't know what they meant. Dirty bookstores, that's yeah. what. <laughs> I think it was one of those dirty bookstores. Now, I was a young woman in the 1970s, and I went into plenty of dirty bookstores. I was a little, uh, well, obviously, I should have been a sexologist going all the way back. That was just my path. And I wasn't afraid of them, and they were 
you know, were they unesthetic? I didn't even care or know at that point. But but good vibrations sort of set us up self up looking a little bit like a living room with a whole lot of sex toys scattered around. <laughs> <laughs> you could sit in a nice, comfortable chair and read a book, but you could also go look at all those vibrators sitting on the table and, and they were plugged in or had batteries in so you could turn them on and figure out what kind of vibration they were likely to give. And so that was pretty radical because in the dirty bookstores, if you bought a vibrator, you bought it in a box. You didn't get a chance to turn it on and see how loud it was or any of those mm. things. So. That was the the sort of good vibrations difference. Joni cared, Joni Blank, the founder, cared very much about the if that starts to get loud for you, if it gets close, we're gonna <laughs> that um, sounds all right. All so right. far. He's Good. just he's just chirping like cops do. Yeah, sh- shout if if you <laughs> <laughs> go mute again. Like if I see you starting to freak out, I'll assume that might be what it was instead of what I said. All right. So Joni wanted the people who worked there to be comfortable talking up to anybody about sex. Yeah. And she wanted to sell the best stuff that was available to be sold. And when I first found Good Vibrations, that meant about six vibrators and six books. And there were mm-hmm. silicone dildos, but they were in the filing cabinet still that she hid them and people had to know to ask for them because dildos were not socially acceptable in those days. Vibrators there were. Is it because dildos are anatomically... Accurate-ish, or what's the? Well, of course, it depends on the dildo, but sure, yes, yeah. yes, okay. and and because you know, uh, from from before the time of Good Vibrations opening and and now to the present, um, there have been some fluctuations in the way vibrators have been talked about. But vibrators have a history as a sexual health tool, and mm. nay, simply a health tool. In our antique vibrator museum, which Joni founded with about six vibrators, we have many more than that now, and I'm the curator, not surprisingly. <laughs> uh, in the antique vibrator museum, we have a book published in, uh, actually, it, it had it was published m- many times in the in the 19-teens, but the book is called Health and How to Get It. And every sing- it's all about vibrators, and every single chapter is about a different disease or condition that you might have that will be cured or helped with a vibrator. One of them being hysteria, which is the whole story of the Antique Vibrator Museum and yeah. women's health, right? But uh, you also could apparently treat your tuberculosis. Now, I, I really hope none of the listeners of Blackbird have... Are, are struggling with tuberculosis right now. If so, I hope you have health care. It still exists, of course. It's not completely eradicated. But look, if you've got a touch of tuberculosis, just using a vibrator is not going to cure you. I just feel like I have to say that. But but, but it can't hurt, right? So tuberculosis is a lung condition, right? So and if you're yeah. if you're super congested and you get a nice vibrator and you get some just some pertussis on your on your some percussion on your your lungs it might help you feel better but it won't cure you it's a bacterium that causes tuberculosis so Mm. i just want to clear that up in case anyone was running for the toy box by the bed thinking oh this is great i don't have to go to the doctor now did it did it work on covid or was that you know i have not heard of anyone who has explored Early enough for me to be able to report one way or the other about COVID. I do know that there has been an uptick in my world about discussions about vibrators during COVID, partly because many people were quarantined. Sure, yeah. 
solo and needed to, you know, up the game of the solo play. And plenty of people and their people were quarantined separately, at least at first. Mm. And so it's a good thing now that you can get a vibrator that you can uh, hook up with Bluetooth and not just vibrators even, you know, the cock sleeves and different kinds of things. There are things that you can hook up to the Bluetooth you can use together, even if you're not the same apartment or the same town or the same country. Yeah. It's progress. I'm not just thinking about the internet as progress, but that's progress. I've been, I've been partnered, I think, since that kind of thing became mainstream, like, and we live together. So we haven't had to explore that kind of thing, but it is very fascinating just sort of hearing through the grapevine what sorts of technologies are coming out for uh, for masturbatory use. And also, like you said, uh, kind of co-masturbatory use, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and you also asked what, what, what's my role with yeah. that? My, my role is that I stepped into that, that stream flowing and realized that it was a really wonderful place to communicate about sexuality and it's in its broadness, a pleasure focus on sexuality in particular, which so many people need more information about because they didn't get it in sex ed. And that I could, uh, that they would give me space to do all the other things that I do as well. My other, you know, my side, my side work, if you will. And so I started out being a staffer like any other behind the counter working there one day a week. Uh, they needed help on Saturdays because it got busier. And a little bit later, I actually managed to finish my doctorate at the Institute, got my PhD, and then I got promoted to staff, staff <laughs> sexologist, which was a title that I gave myself, but they all agreed that that was a good title. <laughs> and and um, and so I did most of the same educationally related things that I'd already been doing, but then I got a desk and um, the the represent the business to the public and the press. And we were the first sex toy company to my knowledge that had a sexologist working for it. Now there are sexologists and some sex experts and many of the, the companies in the brands, but uh, we were around a little before the brands that are you know, famous today and many of the other businesses. So that's what I've been doing for 30, almost 32 years. I came to the San Francisco in the mid eighties, started in my sexology program, um, did the, some of the AIDS work that I was mentioning. And then, and then in 1990, I stepped into this role. And so I got to, to, to experience the nineties, which were I don't know, sort of gay in some ways yeah. <laughs> in San Francisco from this perch. It was it was just about right. We've got a nightclub called the Gay 90s here in Minneapolis, although I think it's referring to the 1890s. Well, I mean, it's referring to the gayness, but uh, the 1890s were called the Gay 90s, right? That's what it's referring they were. to? Okay. Yeah. Not homosexual, but uh, just gay as in happy, I think, back then, right? Right. Yeah, and you're in for, Minneapolis, which is what the Paris of the Midwest <laughs> or yeah, something. something. I have been yeah. many happy hours in Minneapolis. It's oh, really? Yeah. I've still never been to San Francisco. I've been to Southern California a couple of times. Um, so if I'm ever out in the Bay Area, I'll make sure to stop by Good, Good Vibrations. Oh, it sounds fascinating. Let me know. Absolutely. So you've written and edited just an absolute ton of books. I, I was looking through your bibliography. I think the most fascinating one was one where 
It was an erotica anthology where lesbians wrote gay erotica and gay men wrote lesbian erotica. The difference in what the traditional binary genders find erotic is very different. How, or at least stereotypically, how did that turn out? Well, stereotypically, you're absolutely right. And, uh, and, and as with any, any system where, where stereotypical you know, ideas or, or a sort of a accepted inf- knowledge rules the day, right? There will be outliers. Mm-hmm. So the, there were some people who wrote for, we called it switch hitters, this book. Um, some of the people who wrote for switch hitters were really trying their hand at this for the first time and sort of, sort of entered through either a little bit porny or traditional gay and lesbian understandings of each other tropes. Others uh, were really breaking the box or were some of the outliers who some, whether or not they understood themselves as binary in terms of their sexual orientation or their gender identity. And, you know, and I continued to work on that, that question after switch hitters, but regardless of whether they felt that way, they had an erotic imagination or writerly imagination at the very least that could jump bodies and identities pretty successfully. You can do that if you've read all the gay porn. <laughs> of course I have. And some other women have too. And in fact, there are plenty of well-known, plenty of, at least a good handful of, well-known gay male pornography writers of the last 30 years. You notice I didn't say gay male porn writers, because some of them are actually women. They write under pseudonyms. They are well-read. They're well-reviewed. And they do a good job at, at looking at what appears to appeal to gay men when they read and write erotic uh, fantasy. So they just jump right in and participate. So we had that, too. And we had, we had some men who could do that the other, in the other direction. You, you've got to... You got to care about the other variant of person as people in order to to really pull that off, you know, to sort of care about the kind of sexuality that the the characters that you create or or give voice to would have. Um, care know enough and care about enough about your readers who match those characters to care not to offend them or to make them go, oh, this is crap. <laughs> I remember I was I was in an audience in the late 1970s with a, a well-known lesbian erotic um, writer and editor, and someone from the audience asked her, "Was she sure that all the stories?" This might have given me the idea for the book, as a matter of fact. Was she sure that all the stories that she received were really from women? And she just said, "Oh, I could tell if a man wrote it." <laughs> And I think most people assume that they could. Yeah, yeah. And honestly, most writers, you could probably tell. You know, there would be tells. There would be assumptions uh, about what the sex sexuality is like, or it would be, you know, not not differentiated from male sexual eroticism enough, or whatever. But um, you know, many waves one ocean is. The Chinese used to say, apparently, in her bow. At least there was a, a 
dorm room poster in the 1970s that said that and was mm. supposedly Chinese wisdom. God only knows. It's, it's good wisdom anyway. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I have been, I have been looking my whole entire life, I think, for some support for the idea that we can be multifarious, mm. we humans. Um, I care a lot about that. And I know that not everybody is the same as everybody else. And in fact, the, like the, the chief problem that, that sexologists are called upon to address is this idea that there's a normal sexuality that everybody should be matching and untold misery and untold numbers of relationships who don't actually match that way or individuals who try and don't, don't, who, who don't express themselves that way or feel that way. That's the, that's sort of the ground um, work for somebody who deals with this stuff as far as the diversity piece is concerned, because the, the, et cetera, et cetera, studies programs can talk about this from a really philosophical or, a or, a, other kinds of levels all they want, but human beings are running around confused about this stuff. And I know because so many of them have talked to me in the last 50 years. So I'm glad that, that I had a chance. I mean, there were, the whole book was tongue in cheek and yet was terrific. So I'm glad that I had the chance to, to sort of reach out and meet some of those those boundary crossing yeah. authors and at that time I wanted my own dissertation to, to study that very phenomenon people who wrote in a different gender or sexual orientation voice than their own and it turns out that the entire history of erotica is so full of that kind of thing when you start to scratch around and look for it sure that I had to quit <laughs> I had to go find <laughs> another thing to write about because what? there was much. What did you end up writing your dissertation on? I uh, took my first book, Exhibitionism for the Shy. Ah, that was the next book I was going to ask you about. Great. Good transition. And I <laughs> sort of rewrote it as a dissertation. Okay. It was, I already had all of these interviews transcribed, right? And I was like, now I know that I don't fully respect um, research unless it gets up an N up above a hundred or so, you know, mm-hmm. when these people tell me that they have discovered a new thing and they talked to six people, I'm like, well, you, you've discovered something that at least six people yeah. talk about an experience. I'm not sure that I should be setting myself up against those six people. Maybe, maybe not. We'll see, do some more research, but I had couple of dozen at least people who talked about what exhibitionism meant in their sex lives. And I was like, this will get me my degree. This is enough for a starter study. It's not the last word on this topic, but it's a starter study. And I thought that the people had said really interesting things. So I printed out the entire set of, of interviews as a, like a suffix or not a suffix of an addendum to the, part where I talked about this, the statistics and the, mm-hmm. the things that I'd learned and the things that other people needed to study next and turned it in. What, uh, so what did, what was sort of the consensus or what were some of the more common definitions of exhibitionism for the people that you were studying, interviewing? Well, when I was thinking about exhibitionism to begin with, I was thinking about exhibitionism as, you know, the word is, the word was then, anyhow, in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical yeah. Manual, 
mental yeah. illnesses. Uh, of course, practically everything we've ever done for fun on a Saturday <laughs> night has been in there, right? You know, the, I, I, th- I think that as a, as a sexually adventurous person uh, and, a, and a queer person for decades, there's something about hearing that there's a kind of sexuality that's been problematized that way. And, you know, there's a history to all of this. This, this, this is, is part of the history that started in Germany in the late 19th century when people were trying to figure out what, what are all these sex things? Are they, mm-hmm. should we put all the people in the asylum that we're putting them in because they have a sex thing? Turns out I don't feel that we should be doing that, but the DSM got on board before all those decisions were made. So what I wanted people to look at whether or not they found exhibitionistic behavior showing off their body or their sexual process or something like that to be erotically stimulating for themselves. There's a, the, the, another way of putting it is, is, you know, this person runs around flashes everyone. Mm-hmm. Well, presumably some of those people find that erotically stimulating sure. to themselves. It's one of the reasons they might do it, but it's also non-consensual. And that's what will really land somebody in the DSM even today yeah, and yeah. in there is non-consensual behavior. So, and I don't want to encourage non-consensual behavior. I want to find, I don't, I don't want to necessarily snuff a behavior that is mainly engaged in non-consensually. If the person isn't fixed on it being non-consensual, then I believe that there's a way to find a context to do it consensually. I'm not sure everyone agrees with me out there, but that's what I believe. And so that's what I tried to go and explore an exhibitionism for the shy and turn it into, you know, the dissertation really sort of explored that kind of stuff. The the book itself, which was my first published book, really is more of a sex self-help manual, a sexual self-help manual. That's what the title sounds like. More comfortable being exhibitionistic or showing off or, or just feeling less sexually shy, right? Because so many people are just so nervous. You know, are they doing it right? They ne- they didn't get good information. There's plenty of information now. Not all of it's good, <laughs> but you can find all of it on the internet. And I really wanted to encourage people to find the part about exhibitionism that, that made them feel erotically strong and powerful and mm. and having a good time and 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 charged up and turned on so that they could find appropriate people to show off to and with and and have a something that kind of powered their erotic feelings so that they didn't have to get up on their head and be so scared about everything because that too is a sexual problem that many people have if you worry about something enough is my dick going to get hard? Am I going to have an orgasm this time? Whatever it might be, chances are your dick won't get hard and you won't have an orgasm this time <laughs> because it's not good for the process of sexual functioning to have like a, a monkey mind situation mm-hmm. where you can't actually experience the body's own functioning. Right. I mean, there are other ways to talk about that, but that's that's one way to describe it. And people talk themselves out of orgasms and, and arousal all the mm-hmm. time. It's not the only thing that might be implicated in those problems, but you always have to figure out if that's one of the things because it's so, so common. 
Yeah. So do you think that, I mean, the last, I, I don't know, maybe like half decade, maybe a little bit longer, we've seen Snapchat where you can basically have virtual sex with, you know, I mean, you're masturbating and sharing pictures and videos of yourself. I mean, it's, it's a thing that happens on Snapchat. If you don't know that audience, that's what Snapchat is used for. Watch your kids. And now, and, and now you've got OnlyFans uh, where people can just self-produce porn and get paid for it, become professional. Yeah. A lot of people are now porn stars, just they're self-published porn stars. What do you make of this phenomenon? Is it good, bad, indifferent, liberating? I mean, yeah. Do you have an opinion? <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. I always have opinions about things like this. Yeah. Of course I do. Sure, I have yeah. You're a sexologist. Three you have to. As a matter of fact, yeah, I've heard of Part of my part of my brand, isn't it? No, yeah. I no. Of course, I have opinions because um, because this stuff is fascinating mm. and and very much deserves us to think about it and and why it's showing up in the context that it is. But but speaking of context, that's the answer to your question: Is it good? Is it bad? Is it indifferent? It 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 depends an awful lot on the context. Sure. Like if if people go onto those places and they don't have basic respect like the 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 fans on only fans if they don't have basic res- respect for the the person who's putting the show on if the people on uh, snapchat are don't care if the person that gets to see their dick pic wants to see their dick pic or whatever it might be mm-hmm. then we're crossing into a situation where a couple of things will happen. One, other people haven't been given the opportunity to agree to the kind of exploration that's going on. And plenty of people don't have enough of a say in the way that their sexual life is conducted as it is. So here's just some more of that um, in the context of people who maybe really find it kind of traumatic or upsetting. Uh, there will be people who will be underage who can't legally be in any space, but it's not appropriate. Mm-hmm. And um, and even without talking any further about that and whether or not that's the way society ought to work, it's the way society does work. Yeah. And there's so much friction going on in the present day about that kind of stuff that, you know, I have to tell not, not 18-year-olds all the time that there will be a time when they can get a lot more information than they can get today, but today's not that day. Yeah. And the people who don't behave well, you could just, they don't play well. if they don't play well with others, the whole scenario starts to look shady to everybody, including some of the people who have participated in it and wanted to get something specific out of it and could have. But you could say the same thing about internet dating, right? Mm -hmm. You could say the same thing about virtually everything internet, and you can say the same thing about most things off the internet. So, So really not going directly to the the activity or the place where the activity happens is problematic, but the, do have people gotten enough information to be able to go into those kinds of venues, whether they're virtual or real, uh, IRL, whatever the word <laughs> yeah. is, meet space. Meet you space. Yeah, I like, meet space. I like I like I like meet space, but nobody knows I what like. that means anymore. <laughs> 
So that is pretty that is pretty 1990s, yeah. isn't it? That, yeah. Meet space. Meet space, y'all, was when actual humans in their bodies went out and interacted with one another in one way or another. Yeah. We all spend some time in meat space, but often not very much. So the my favorite thing is going to a going to a gay bar and everyone is on grinder to see who else is at the gay bar. That's the that's the modern day version of cruising, which is, you know, it's fun and it's very much lower risk than than older cruising, but also it it does take some of the confidence boosting out of it, I think. So I think it also takes some of the fun energy out mm-hmm. of the gay bar because yeah. one of the things that was fun in back in the day was a bunch of people coming together to cruise or at least to make some supportive friends. Let's yeah. just like minimum, at minimum. And um and and sort of learning the ropes of making eye contact and putting yourself out there and all those things. And sure, that can go awry as well. But the the idea of a you know a pump and beat in the background and everybody is on their phone. <laughs> <laughs> it does make me miss um I don't know, the the stud in 1988 a little bit. The stud was a fat. In fact, I was at the stud the year I turned 21. My gay friend from school took me there and it was quite the place. So all y'all in gay bars, look up from your phones occasionally. (laughs) Please dance once in a while. I'm going to be just sitting here worrying about you that you're not actually utilizing the beautiful opportunity you have to connect with some human beings around you. But as you're saying, if you've got grinder on, as soon as, you know, when when the ping says, doesn't it tell you how far away someone is? Yeah, yeah it's well, not very accurate, you. but yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, see, now you could make some new friends that way too, yeah. couldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's hysterical. I'm not sure I approve of it, but it is hysterical. It's hysteri- Maybe we should give them vibrators to deal with that hysteria then. Well, yeah. <laughs> now when everybody's, now when I say hysterical, nobody thinks I mean funny anymore. I know. Um, <laughs> although, Cooking up, there must be there must be an app that's doing this. Is there not an app that's doing this? Cooking up Bluetooth sex toys with Finder apps for situations in like at like concerts and raves and gay bars oh, and things like that. Tried wouldn't that be fun? There's an idea. You'd have to you'd have to swipe consent for your mm-hmm. you know your machine to turn on, but. That could be that could be just, really neat. Just walking around with a butt plug and it all of a sudden starts vibrating. Yeah. James, we should maybe patent let's, that. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, there's a little bit of an obsession with... So on the right, the obsession is with pedophilia, the what I think is a big tempest in a teapot of minor attracted persons that like, oh, it's coming right around the corner. This is going to be a new accepted sexual orientation on the right. On the left, it's grooming. And like everyone who flirts is a groomer. If there's an age gap, and there's an age gap in my relationship. My partner and I are about 15 years apart. So, you know, that's a thing. We, we don't ever get dirty looks at the gay bar, but, you know, we're a little bit self-conscious about it. And someone who didn't know us might call me a groomer for it now. But then even like, we have a we have a pair of friends who were in high school. They dated. One was a senior and one was a freshman. They were pro- they, it was a Catholic school. They were probably the only lesbians in the entire school, so they dated. And now the person who was a freshman when they dated 
basically considers that person a sexual assaulter because they were groomed, so to speak, because there was a little bit of an age gap. I don't know the full story there. Maybe there was some actual lack of consent. I don't know. But it seems to be more of a mind virus than a reality. Do you see this as problematic? Do you see it as, well, well how do you see it? Well, I would, I, I, I really want people who feel as though they've had or have had, for sure, mm-hmm. uh, experiences that have been traumatizing, were non-consensual, et cetera, to, to have a space where they are taken seriously, where if they need some support in the present day, some help, some therapy, some whatever it might be, that they get that. Outsiders looking in and evaluating relationship dynamics, especially with buzzwords and slurs, people from the outside looking in are not seeing the whole picture. And that's a way to tune people into potential danger, but it's also a way to blame and shame people who haven't done what you think they've done. And, you know, I was a, I was a teenager once and I went around the block as many times as I could manage. Why? Because I was interested in this stuff and there was no other way to learn about it than have sex. If y'all had given me some real good sex information and a stack of books, I probably would have stayed home the entire time reading those books. But did you know? No, you did not. And so I went around the block, learned a lot. Wasn't always consensual, wasn't always fun, wasn't always something that I would ever want care to repeat. And it's not something I would wish on another person. And it's also not something that I can say because I didn't feel traumatized in the way that we're describing here mm-hmm. then that somebody today shouldn't feel traumatized either. So th- so I don't want to I don't want to do that whole, you know, when Me Too rose up and we were having all of these yeah. conversations that are, you know, very comparable to the one that we're having now, um, you know, mostly in a heterosexual context, but not not exclusively even. Um, there, there were so many people who were like, that's just how it was. It's like, well, yeah. It was like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes, it was like that. And that doesn't, that's not the end of the sentence. <laughs> but also, and this gets into more legality than the perception of victimization on the victim's part or the the perceived victim's part anyway. Even prior to Me Too, I'd say probably starting around 2015 or so, and especially on college campuses, and my uh, a relative of mine, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be too too descriptive, was kind of caught up in something like this where the two young people would have sex, they would be consensual as far as anybody knew, but then typically the 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 female partner would come to regret it for some reason claim that she was sexually assaulted, and then the male partner would then be, if not prosecuted under the law, although that's what happened to my relative, would be at the very least interrogated by the university and oftentimes expelled. Is this sort of posthumous prosecution just, do you think? Or is it situational? (laughs) Well, I, I do think it's situational because if something problematic is happening, outside of a relationship, on a date, in a relationship, if something problematic is happening and it doesn't get observed, it's going to be like the tree falls in the forest, but no, it didn't because there was nobody there to hear it as far as, as far as finding a way to move the people 
in that situation into a space where they can get what they need consensually, maybe not together, where people can leave problematic situations when they need to, when people Mm -hmm. in problematic situations can understand that they may be contributing to a problematic situation and determine not to do that and learn how not to, you know, to, to, there's a wonderful program starting through the, the, it's been going on for a few years now, actually in San Francisco through the BDSM world, which of course is the place where tons of talk about consent has happened, you know, before consent got busted out into that part of the, the, the society, the folks in the kinkiest part of society, or at least the, that part of that kinky part of society have been talking about consent and negotiation and agreements and safe words and all of the things mm-hmm. for decades that I just keep saying if sex ed could talk a little bit about that, you know, a little bit to help people communicate to each other that they actually want to stop what's going on right now, that would be great because who among us? hasn't had, you know, most benign situation, a Charlie horse in their leg during an an opportune time and needed to stop the proceedings in order to stretch it out all the way to someone being in a context with someone who's like, if you're here alone with me, you must want the same thing I do. Well, no, nobody ever talked about that and came to that agreement, right? So there is, there's everything from, innocent shit that could be misinterpreted all the way to predatory nonsense. And it's, it's, it's in a, it's in a huge spectrum. And from the outside, it's not always easy to figure out what will have happened. And, and yet if something wrong needs to be addressed, how do you do it except after the fact, you know, it, as a sexologist, when I want it to be addressed is before the fact when young people, before they get into you know, sexually mingling situations learn a lot more about mm-hmm. communication and consent than they do right now. And plenty of people will think that that's sort of a Pollyanna-ish way to go about it. But come on, society, maybe we could try it and see if it works because preventing young people from getting information that they need to help them conduct their sex lives in a way that's going to be safe for them healthy, satisfying, you know, put on whatever nice adjectives you want. Mm. That just mostly doesn't happen. And one of the things that I noticed that I just, I just wanted to, to riff and then, and then yeah. please, please, please get into the part that's most interesting to you. One of the things that I noticed is that because some age difference um, contexts are problematic, then that means that must mean that all of them are. It's like when you see a phenomenon, folks, that doesn't mean that you have seen the only way the phenomenon presents. It's just not like that. And maybe in some cases, you're seeing a problem. And a lot of times, you're being ageist and you're taking away sexual autonomy from one or both of those partners. The people who, who live their lives in a space of sexual autonomy need to be left alone to do that. And people who are problematic, we need to figure out a way 
to address it. And I don't think we're addressing it in the, in the context <laughs> we're discussing. We're trying to. Yeah. I will say this. All of this, all of this discourse that you asked me about and that I've been ranting about, <laughs> all this discourse is we're trying to address some things that are real. But we don't always know all the time when they're real. And when we are looking at somebody and, and, and putting a template on them, we're not doing anybody any favors, including our own sense of discernment and ability to, to read nuance and, and the way that people live in their lives and mm. in their bodies. Because a lot of us are not very good at that. I think that's a good answer. I think the one thing that stands out, you said, uh, you know, if the only time you really can address it is after the fact. And, you know, obviously you can't address something that hasn't happened yet other than preventing it. And then if you prevent it, then how do you know it's never going to happen? Or how did you know that it wouldn't have happened anyway or something, whatever. The question is- falling in a forest. Yeah. It's, right. Yeah. yeah. That, that thing you just-, you just <laughs> my, my brain's starting to get tired. Audience, as you can tell, this is a pre-recorded thing. We're not doing this on Sunday morning when my brain is fresh like we usually do. Uh, I'm going to be traveling through the month of whatever next month is. So uh, I'm pre-recording these. My one little hang-up is that- you know, after the fact is a great time to deal with your trauma because you're not going to have your trauma before the fact. I don't think is a good time to deal with punishing a, a bad actor unless the bad actor intended to act badly. If the bad actor was acting in good faith by, you know, having consensual sex with somebody at the time, then I don't think that punishing them for that uh, and, you know, I mean, I, I don't really believe in punishment anyway, but uh, I certainly don't believe in punishing someone for doing what they thought was a good thing. Yeah. What I started to say about the, the kinky community in San Francisco is that there's been a class lately that is intended to do a really interesting thing. I've never seen anything quite like it before. People who have been accused of non-consensual behavior within the community can, if they want to, take a class. People who have been aggressed upon mm. can, they want to, take a class. And the way the class is conceptualized, as I understand it, recognizes that if two people are in a scenario, there are two people who can address the way things are going to mm. go. Now, if somebody is behaving in a non-consensual way, nothing that the person that they're aggressing on can say or do will necessarily stop right. them, right? There, there's, there's skills around recognizing that you're not in a good situation and seeing if you mm. can get the fuck out of there. There's there, there are a variety of things that are worth addressing. You know, I, I went and took karate when I was in college. That, mm -hmm. that seemed like a good yeah. idea at the time, right? But, and, and people would say now, it's not your responsibility to do that. I'm like, no, maybe not. But on the other hand, it was something I could do to exert my agency and feel like I had a little more safety when I ran around exploring things that I wasn't supposed to explore, right? In context that I wasn't supposed to explore. So, so, there's a lot of there's a lot of better work that we could all do to make the kinds of things that we're talking about now less likely to happen. One of the things that I really want to say about about all this because this is just such a 
such a sexological sort of like my my social, my sex, my cultural sexology uh, that I kind of wove together out of those two kinds of focus. I'm so concerned about situations where people get into sexual scenarios that people outside can't feel comfortable with and who get pushed from the outside to say that there wasn't, that it wasn't okay that it happened to them. I want us to have more freedom as well as the skill set that we need to operate the freedom to get into whatever scenario we choose to get into, to be safe with other humans so that we can get out of it if it's going the wrong way. So it's safe words are for my vanilla friends and they work. (laughs) And I just want, if we're going to do this thing that we're doing and many things about this thing that we're discussing are so important to do because people having terrible, abusive, traumatic, or even just shitty bad sex for generations and generations and nobody stepping in adequately isn't a good way for our, you know, great, great grandchildren, even if you and I are not going to have any, or maybe we will, who knows? It's not a good way to set them up to create a better world for the kinds of sex that they want to have. And, you know, I I think that, I think that there are plenty of people out there, maybe, maybe plenty of people listening to your show who haven't ever really felt that they had to put themselves in a position to do activism to have the kind of sex that they wanted to have or the kinds of relationships hmm. that, that they wanted to have, right? I'm not going to, I'm not going to, going to like overarchingly say, well, but the heterosexuals don't have to do that. Some people might say that, but I don't think that's true. But plenty never have to question right. this, never have to say, you know, we'd, we'd better, we'd better band together and go talk to our legislators because unless they were of two different races and that was only 50 years ago that that started to get fixed. Then most of the hands were off most heterosexual behavior most of the time with exceptions for sure. The same can't be said from the queer community that I came up in, right? That when, when, when I came out as queer, most of the States in the union still hadn't made same-sex sex legal. It was illegal. It was, no, no matter how old you were or weren't, there still were, you know, we haven't, we haven't talked much about gender identity, but wearing more than two or three pieces of clothing from another gender's wardrobe was illegal. You could go to jail. Wow. Like there's a lot of throwing the queer people in jail going on back then. And if people wonder you were so activated about all this. It's like, because our friends and our forebears were getting thrown in jail. And for quite a while after I came out, that continued to happen. And, and, and there's, some, there's some variant of this situation. There's a hint of it in what we're talking about. It's not the same thing, but, but there's a, we are problematizing a sexual scenario that we frankly don't know enough about and we want to be able to understand it better. We want, that's what the plethysmograph is for. <laughs> Let's put that thing on that penis and figure out how dangerous this person is. Now I want to say that you, I, 
almost nobody knows what a plethysmograph is. So I love you, James, yeah, for me I just, even knowing I that, used to, right? I used to go to these support groups at the Twin Cities Men's Center. They had gay groups and bi groups and groups for men who were in the middle of divorce. It was all men's groups, though. That was the thing. They did have mm-hmm. a trans group in 2001, which was, you know, the, the fact that they recognized that that was even a thing was pretty progressive. But yeah, that's where that's where I met that particular sexologist slash therapist slash plethysmographer. That's the word I was trying to say earlier that I couldn't get out. Yeah, I can barely <laughs> say it. Well done. But but here's the thing. And back when you met that person, the research that I'm about to mention hadn't been done sure. yet. But it's been done now. And there have been some studies looking at the way women respond to the various kinds of porn movies that they would show the guys to find out if they're sort of plethysmograph menaces on any level. Well, it turns out that women in the aggregate, at least as far as these studies have found so far, are much more likely to get aroused to a wide range of kinds of porn, lesbian porn, heterosexual porn, gay male porn, elephants having sex in the jungle, all the porn. And if we were looking at women's sexuality, the way the plethysmograph professionals have been taught to look at male sexuality, it would be like, it's a crisis. You know, we talk about very different crises when it comes to women. And it's, it's right that we do in many ways that if someone is aggressed upon and if someone has non-consensual experiences, that's often a crisis, at least in her life, and it may well be a crisis in the whole community, right? There, there's, it's not that we shouldn't be talking about this stuff. There are things to, there are things to unpack and to try to understand and to fix. But most of the people who special, whose who's specialty is in in trying to deal with women's safety, you know, there's a through line. I'm not saying everybody ha- touches this through line, but some do. Uh, thinking of women as, as on some level, more innocent, less sexual. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. Than men. And that's what, that's what sex positive feminism is all about is to try to call that out and to say, you know what? Plenty of women have not been given the tools and the skills and the permission and the, and the, you know, had been, been not shamed for, you know, slut shamed for doing whatever they've done all the way back. And it's still happening, but Right now, we need to understand that human beings of all variants can be extremely sexual people. And that means that we, can't, we, we don't just need to teach men some skills, you know? <laughs> so, like, keep it in your pants, sir, for heaven's sake, you know? Go back to... <laughs> go back to the swim team. Don't bother the girls. It's not... When there's bothering going on, it might be that simple. Uh-huh. But the overarching set of stories that we might tell each other and ourselves about our genders and about our sexual bodies are not simple. They're generally not as simple as we think. If we can complexify it a little bit and be okay with that, I like to hope that the kind of scenario that you began talking about where, where people are being problematized from without would happen less Mm -hmm. because I think the human beings these days uh, are continuing to do that old human behavior of 
you know, pointing and shaming. And some pointing and shaming is sometimes worthwhile, but there've got to be better ways to work on this than that. And that's the side I stand on. Cool. All right. We're running short on time, and I really do want to get into sexual sexual orientation and gender identity. I don't know if I have a gender identity. You know, I, I'm, I'm a dude. Like, I know I'm a guy, but I don't feel like a guy. Is that just the same way that fish don't know what water is because that's all they, that's all they know? Or, I mean, does everyone have a gender identity? And if so, like, what is it? Well, I think that there are definitely at least are people who don't feel that they have a gender identity that matches any of the categories we've got so far. Okay. Of course, lately, there have been many more categories. Whee! More, more choice points. That's great. But there are people, I was just, I'm, I'm working on a, a sort of little survey that Good Vibrations did, and we asked people their gender, and there are people who say agender, no gender mm-hmm. identity. I know there are people who, who do not feel that they relate to the, the menu that we have right now. Um, maybe if the menu gets a few more items on it, they'll find one they like or not because they really feel as though gender isn't remotely primary in the way that they understand themselves, right? Right. I think that not feeling particularly masculine, particularly feminine, particularly anything, that those could could put you in a non-binary place or on a genderqueer place, or they could take you off that spectrum because that that part of identity just doesn't speak to you, just isn't important to you. And I remember back, this has got to be at least 25 years ago, I did a talk to a group about history. Even even that long ago, I had some things to say about history. And um, and I I used a phrase like, and and whatever whatever people identified as or whatever people um, determined their sexual identity to be or sexual orientation to be if anything i said and a young person snaked their hand up in the air and said you mean i don't have to be anything like no you actually you don't have to be yeah. anything you don't feel that you are gay straight by a or whatever you don't you don't you don't have to participate in these identity naming experiences but I think most people do, and most people, most people get something out of doing it. They get they get a skeleton to build more of their identity on. They get a, they get a, a name to be. They get a crew to be with. They get they get um, sexual stereotypes to roll with and help them make decisions for themselves, or they get to step off that train and you know, be wild ones or whatever they, whatever it is, it is working for people. But I think the, we got to remember that all this extra sexual orientation and gender identity that we're contending with these days, the pronouns, everything, <laughs> all of this is here. All of this is here because not that long ago in our history, Honestly, there are only two ways to be about gender. And there was really only one okay way to be about sexual orientation. Mm. And if you weren't those ways, chances are high that you got shamed or worse. Mm. And, and this, this, this world of um, activism that, that goes from, you know, 
queer nation protests to dressing up nice and going to the Capitol and shaking the hands of your representative or any of the things that happened to, for example, get marriage equality, you know, a decade or so ago when that came down the pike. There have been decades and decades and decades of people having trouble with gender and sexual orientation issues, not being accepted in those ways, not the, the, the diversity of our, us not being respected enough, and then ultimately banding together, having some, having some theory, some of what they teach in those studies classes, and, and trying to make the world a more accommodating place. Sure. And so it's super ironic now that one of the arguments against gender and orientation diversity is that it's making the world a less accommodating place for people who live in the binary and don't question it and, and, and find it comfortable. Yeah. And so I would just like everyone to get along, obviously. That's what I would like. But I would like us to understand that there's a, there's a history to it, mm-hmm. right? There's a backstory to it. There, there have been real consequences in people's lives. And as you, as the story you told, there are real consequences involved in other situations that we get into, mm. but we tend not to make enough space and give enough support for people to live in their sexual orientation or lack of same, their gender identity or lack of same. So, yeah, I guess I've always seen like people who are like obviously the gender that they identify with. You look like a guy, you identify as a guy, you are a guy or same thing with a woman. Uh, the, those those people who, when they put their pronouns in their bio on Twitter or in their email signature at work or whatever, I've always seen that as like silly and performative. Are you saying that that's more um, more of a way to, to kind of normalize that kind of thing and make trans people feel more accepted and uh, sort of at home in the world? It's one of the things I'm saying, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you asked me about my they pronoun earlier, yeah. it's like, yeah, sometimes I don't feel like any kind of a woman that that especially is held up as a woman, there are things that I've always done that have gotten off, gotten me off the gender binary in various kinds of ways. But just as importantly as that, and and recognizing that it's okay for me to to sort of live in the world as a woman and not quite, uh, just as important as that is me saying, you know, I, I, I see you out there feeling like if somebody actually calls mm. you she, it's going to fucking hurt your heart. Yeah. And I don't want to, I don't want to live in that world where those people's heart hurts that way. It seems like a simple fix to me. Yeah. I know not everyone agrees with that, but I would like to ask them, can't you, can't you see it from a different point of view? I mean, I think that this is, we're in a we're in a fix where it would be a good idea for us to try to see things in different points of view so that we understand better who we're with, who we think we're against, how we're mm-hmm. who we're surrounded by, all the things, you know, all the kinds of compatibility that I talk about all the time around relationship. And, you know, and then there's a sort of a the, the sociological piece of this that we're talking about that has to do with identity and grouping by identity and all of that. But then there's the how do we how do we come to think the way we do? Mm-hmm. Can we understand each other like that? Because I think if we could, that'd be great. Yeah, I think so too. 
one kind of issue with it, I guess, is that if someone has their pronouns in their bio, then you kind of know where they land in other areas of the socio-political realm. And so it's it's a really good heuristic for shoeboxing. Is that the word? For pigeonholing the person into, you know, oh, this person is clearly a progressive. So, you know, I'm not even going to take what they have to say seriously because they're clearly delusional and they want to lock us all down every time there's a cold going around and they want to shut down our YouTube channels anytime we differ with the, with the you know, current conventional wisdom and, you know, fuck those people. <laughs> so I don't really know if that's a question. It's more of a, it's more of a comment on, <laughs> as, someone, as someone who's on the right, it's easy for us right-wingers to like use those kind of heuristics to figure out what team that other person is on. And, you know, we're sort of in a post-argumentation world at this point. So we need those. We need those in order to, in order to separate us into our, into our teams. Yeah, you can't just only tell by if somebody's got an electric car anymore, can you? Yeah, I know. <laughs> you could, but you that's, can't that's, that's just as often a sign of wealth and bouginess as it is. <laughs> well, yeah, there is yeah. that. You know, I, I, I think the thing that interests me the most, like if I was, if I was full on all the way back in my sociology world, yeah. well, in the first place, if I were, I might not have gotten to meet you, you know, that is that mm-hmm. we, we, we wouldn't necessarily be crossing paths in the same way. But one of the things I value about being a, a sex person in, you know, in terms of what I inter- am interested in, the way I identify, the, 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 like how I carry myself around, that this stuff is stuff that historically hasn't been accepted. So it, because I've built the life that I have and I'm, I'm safe enough to live this life where I live, that means that I don't, I don't fit in boxes easily either yeah. in some ways, right? So I can, but the sociology in me is so interested in the occasional experiments that I hear about, getting people who don't agree on most things politically yeah. to get in a space where they can talk about stuff. And look, you and I have just those videos, those videos make me cry where they get the people like the little, the, the two little panels and, you know, step forward if you believe this and they, it ends up that, well, we will, we, we agree on a lot more and people from my team disagree on a lot more than we actually thought. Those are such cool experiments. I really think that it's worth, it's worth us saying, what are the fact, what, why do we believe what we believe? What are the mm. factors that, that help make the the skeleton of these of these ideologies that um, that there are some people who who full on live and occupy. Obviously, there are, but there are others who are more free range than that, right? Yeah. And and I think that the sexual freedom narrative that I've lived in for the last fifty years, anyway. And uh, at least the libertarian sort of leaning right way, both hold freedom up as being like extremely important and 
it's so interesting to me. Is there a way to, to, to match those freedoms so that everybody, everybody understands why they're so important to each other? Yeah. So well, I don't know. I don't know how well the world that we live in gives us space to do all of this because the minute that I understand that I'm being fed news by an algorithm, that means it's over you. And that means it's over everybody else. <laughs> yeah. And so there's, there's, uh, it, it's good for us to talk because there are going to be things that there are, our algorithms are not bringing us that we can bring each other. Well, and one thing that I've noticed lately, and it's been since we got gay marriage, really. I mean, now that being a gay man is pretty normalized culturally. Yeah, okay, we've gotten some, we've gotten some pretty crazy seeming gender politics now, which that'll be the next thing to be normalized. And it'll, it'll be not crazy anymore. And it will be less political, you know, in 10 years or so. But what has happened is that a lot of gay men now are shifting rightward because they no longer are a minority. But what that's doing to the right is making the right much more open to stuff like this, which is, which is kind of cool. Like, fascinating. <laughs> yeah. It's so fascinating. That's, I, Mm-hmm. And so you've got you've got like Jack Mason, Jack Mason from the Perfume Nationalist podcast who was just on my show. Uh, it will have been one episode ago, I think, by the time this airs. And he is like firmly on the right. Like he's had Nazis on his show, <laughs> but he's not a traditionalist. He's not like religious right. He's also not libertarian. Like he's a he's a Trump rightist who sees no conflict with that and his sexual orientation and sexual identity and his gender identity, which he call, he straight up calls himself gender nonconforming. It's just, it's just really interesting to see what's going on there and what will probably this sort of evolution. I, I'm not, I'm not optimistic for the future as far as economics and things like that go, but I think culturally we'll probably, we'll probably find some sort of, Balance, I guess, is probably the right word. Or at least some sort of live and let liveness, hopefully. We'll see, because you do see that identities are being used on both sides mm-hmm. in weaponized ways, right? Yeah. And so I I hope you're right in what yeah. you're observing and what you're saying. Well, and every every war has to come to an end. I guess that's what I guess that's what I'm saying. The the Hatfields and McCoys can't fight forever and ever. That'd be good. We're like right at time. Do you have do you have time for like one and a half more questions? Yes. Okay. I'm wait. No, I can't put you up on the screen completely yet. So I'm looking at your background and I'm seeing a couple of Our Lady of Guadalupe, and I think you were wearing a necklace with Our Lady of Guadalupe during one of the sessions on Renegade University, and I think the tapestry. I think it's an image from the Book of Ruth, but I could be wrong. Do you have a particular spirituality? That you ascribe to? Do you are you a prayer, a meditator, etc.? I'm I'm not really a prayer or a meditator, but I am a pagan circler sometimes. Cool. I mean, neo paganism um, and um, and goddess religion are really my my spiritual thread that has been the case for me since I was a young teenager and. Um, I practiced more actively 30 years ago than I do now, but that 
the, the images, I mean, I think that might be true for some traditionally Christian people too, right? That the images continue to inform and speak yeah. after, after you've sort of looked carefully at the dogma and you've gone, I don't really live my life that way exactly. So, so part of the, the, the Guadalupe, I mean, the, the Guadalupe is, um, is the goddess of the Americas. Right. Many of us have brought goddesses with us from other places and gods, obviously, too. Um, but when I, when I work with or show the Guadalupe, that's one of the things that I'm touching when I, when I do. Awesome. Okay, well, that's about it. I think we're done. I feel, uh, I feel like this is a very good conversation, a very fruitful conversation. I'm going to... So I'm not going to put my pronouns in my bio, and I'm still probably going to assume that someone who has their pronouns in their bio is on the political left, but I'm going to stop thinking that they're ridiculous and dumb for doing it. So that's, <laughs> that's a step. Um, <laughs> would you... You. <laughs> would you like to, would you like to, oh, we didn't even mention your like main book, Homosexuals, Challenging Assumptions About Gender and Sexuality. That's kind of where this binary uh, aversion comes, where you kind of lay it out in a yeah. more academic yeah, yeah. standpoint. Okay. And, and Homosexuals is really a book, uh, it's, an, it's a collection of writings by people who don't identify as binary, yeah. either as far as gay, straight, or as about male, female. And mm. it, it was published 25 years ago. So it's a little bit before the kind of language that we generally um, think of as being the, the, you know, like the gender spectrum stuff now, yeah. but it's um, it's a predecessor text, I suppose, in some ways. And the idea of homosexuality is like, it's like a riff on postmodern mm. sexuality, postmodern being multiple subjectivities. Cool. So that's what I'm. That's what we're trying to to dig in with homosexuals, and um, is one of the things that that really convinces me that um, you you can't make too many assumptions um, because because we're free range. So many of us are free range. Yeah, yeah. I love that. I love the. I love subjectivity because. Um, it's much more interesting than dogmatism and objectivity doesn't have a hundred percent good track record. Uh, you know, it it does mean, it does mean certain things in different contexts, but, but what I would also like to um, invite listeners to do is if they, if they found this kind of um, thing that I've been talking about of interest that the, that the classes on Renegade university, I think are available for people to take a look at and, one of the things that uh, the very first thing that I did for Renegade University was a discussion on sex positivity, which mm-hmm. we haven't even talked about. Although I think that probably I have given plenty of hints about what it might be like. Yeah. Um, so if people <laughs> are curious about that, they can take a look at the things on Renegade University, and I do a little bit more deep diving. It's a little more academic. Um, I might swear less, but then I maybe I don't. Maybe <laughs> I swear the same amount. <laughs> cool. Um, do you have a website? You want to plug or Twitter or anything? Um, yeah, um, I'm Carol Queen on Twitter. I'm Dr. Carol Queen on Instagram. Um, I don't overuse either one of those platforms. My website's broken, but it'll show back up eventually in some okay. format of Carol Queen. You can someday you can find me. Uh, I've got a Facebook page that I never touch, but when I do, it's to post interesting things that I'm going to do or whatever. So people can find me there as well. Okay. Hey, I'm old enough that you know what, people. There were 
no computers when I was a child. <laughs> and we got along just fine without them. Thank you very much. And my, Shakespeare well, my grandmother well enough, you think? And um, I don't always trust them. I encourage you not to always trust them too. Cool. <laughs> Thank you so much, Carol. This has been a blast. Thank you, James. It's been fun. Thanks for checking out this episode of Blackbird. If you like what you heard today, be sure you're subscribed on your podcatcher of choice. You can find me anywhere by searching Blackbird with James Gentleman. Follow me on Twitter at JamesLJ. My DMs are always open, so if you have feedback, ideas, or have something interesting to say and would like to appear on Blackbird, just drop me a line there. If you'd like to support the show and get early access to all my interviews, plus plenty of bonus content, head over to blackbirdpodcast.com, toss me $7 a month or $70 a year, and I'll get you all set up. You can also find me on Odyssey, where I'm posting the video of my interviews. Just search for Blackbird there or click the link in the show notes. And finally, if you haven't already, please leave me a rating and a review over at iTunes. It really helps the show. Thanks again for listening to Blackbird, and until next time, live free. (laughs) 